Okay, so I'm happy to, here to introduce a distinguished scholar of the Hebrew Bible and one of my first teachers, uh, Carol Newsom, who is the Charles Howard Candler Professor Emerita of Old Testament at Candler School of Theology. She's also the former president of the Society of Biblical Literature, the recipient of numerous honorary doctorates and other honors, and the author of nine books and numerous articles. She co-edited the important women's Bible commentary, served as one of three associate editors for the new Oxford Study Bible, and has written a number of solely authored books, including, for example, The Book of Job, A Conflict of Moral Imaginations from 2009, and the Old Testament Library Commentary on the Book of Daniel in 2014. Carol Newsom has also taught and mentored a generation of scholars studying at the Candler School of Theology and the Graduate School of Emory University. And I actually was privileged to be one of her first students. She was starting her work at Candler in 1980, and I was a first-term master's student enrolled in a first-year Hebrew class that she taught at the time. At the time, I was focused on philosophy and critical theory, and I didn't have any plans at all to focus on biblical study. But Professor Newsom's fantastic Hebrew class and a later class that she taught on debates about suffering in the Bible ended up steering me to where I now am. And that includes teaching an introduction to Hebrew Bible at Union Theological Seminary that's oriented around Professor Newsom's work, especially her exploration of Bible and theology in her 1996 Journal of Religion article, Bakhtin, the Bible and Dialogic Truth. So, Professor Newsom, or if I may call you as I often do, I might slip this way, Carol, yeah. <laughs> I'd like you to please give me and students some background to this article that you wrote. In particular, I think it comes from a conference on Bible and theology that occurred at the University of Chicago, but I also suspect it flows somewhat out of your long experience already by 1996 when the article was published, teaching future pastors and other religious professionals at Candler and being a dialogue with colleagues at, at Candler in theology. And I wondered if you could sort of bring to life some of the dialogical character of your article by giving some background on it. Yes, thank you. I, uh, I, I start that article actually by recalling a little vignette that happened during a search committee meeting in which the Old Testament candidate was asked by a systematic theologian um, what he thought was the center of biblical theology in the Old Testament. And of course, my Old Test the Old Testament candidate said, oh, oh no, we, we can't talk about a center. And they went back and forth. And I realized that the, the, the biblical scholar was trying to defend all of that beautiful variability in the Bible, the different voices. And the theologian operating as a systematic theologian was trying to look for what held it together. And finally, in desperation, the theologian said, can't you just give us something to work with? <laughs> so later on, I mean, I, at the time, I disliked the field of biblical theology intensely because I did find it so reductive. I thought it always was coming to the Bible knowing what it was going to find there, finding it, and then taking it back to the theologians. And 
it just didn't do justice. I thought it marginalized a lot of the parts of the Bible, particularly the wisdom literature that I was very interested in. So I wasn't happy with their approach, but I didn't know what to offer until a number of a certain time I had encountered Mikhail Bakhtin's work. And I thought, yes, yes. What he did was to shift us from the thought that, um, that, that, that our statements are not just, uh, that, that whatever statements we make from a, are from a particular perspective and that they may tell the truth, but there's no way they can tell the whole truth. And that that only emerges in the act of dialogue. And I thought, well, what is the Bible if not an act of dialogue? All these voices talking about overlapping topics. And so I thought, if the theologian can't find something to work with in that, then, then it's not our problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so it, I, what I'm hearing in what you're saying, and it comes out, I think, more in the article, is that it's not just that the Bible is a dialogue, but that there's a certain level of truth to be found in that that a theologian would recognize? Oh, yes, yes. And I always thought that many people mistake Bakhtin as being a relativist. They think that because he privileges dialogue, that that no perspective is better or more adequate than another. And that's not at all where he's coming from. He believes that every position that is worth arguing is worth arguing because you think it does make a claim to the truth. And people hold these passionately and committedly. But, and this is where I think he's so brilliant, there's an ethic involved too. And that is you have to hold your position in humility with the realization that you don't have the last word and you will not even discover what you think until you've engaged with someone who's looking at it from their own perspective. As he said, no one can see the back of their own head. For that, I need somebody else standing in another position. So that's what I liked about him. As a Quaker, I find much to (laughs) commend that perspective too. It feels very consonant with uh, uh, Quaker perspectives. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering um, what what initially drew you to Bakhtin? Because this is, of course, not the only place you use yeah. Bakhtin's work. It's been a theme over a number of different kinds of things you've done. And I'm curious as to what yeah. brought you to this. Well, I've always loved reading literary theory. And so in the 1980s, I was reading literary theory. And he became uh, prominent in literary circles in the uh, West at that time, even though he'd worked decades earlier. Um, but I actually started engaging him because I thought he would help me think about sectarian voices in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I realized, well, he wasn't going to be as helpful as I had thought for that. But wow, I was just starting to work on the book of Job. And I thought he's perfect for helping us understand Job and all its richness. Because most people who read Job pick out a favorite voice, maybe Job's, maybe God's. It's never the friend's. Um, And what Bakhtin did was to help me see, no, to read this adequately, you have to let all these voices make their claims to truth. Don't exclude any of them until you've really listened to what they've got to say. And so it helped me first to work on Job. And then I thought, 
you know, I think it works really well for the Bible as a whole. I, I, I definitely found that to be the case when I've taught my course uh, using your article and um, and also recommending your book on Job to students. Now, I asked you at the outset about sort of the first part of the dialogue, which was sort of what spurred this article. And I don't know if you might have, often as academics do, you might have presented this in more than one context, who knows? But I'm curious as to what sort of response you got from your uh, theological colleagues because there were a bunch of people at that conference I suspect who weren't biblical scholars and yes, uh, others they were, they were very hostile and dismissive <laughs> hmm. and I was surprised I thought that I was bringing something that would be welcome and instead I encountered a lot of resistance I think they were hearing it as relativistic and as, in essence, undermining uh, the sense of truth. And the Bakhtin is not easy when it comes to truth because he, um, he recognizes what he calls monologic truth, that is what you can say in a proposition. But he says the real powerful truth is the dialogic truth in which no one voice can say it completely. It emerges as an event, not as a proposition. And I think the theologians who, after all, they're systematicians, they're very invested in propositions. Mm -hmm. And they heard me, I think, as saying, well, that's just ruled out. No, it's not ruled out. It's just shown that it has a place, but not the whole place. So it took a while. I actually have since then had much warmer response from biblical theologians, systematic theologians, et cetera. But initially, um, it, it was uh, it was not welcome. <laughs> Interesting. So this article was written, I think, uh, it probably I don't re recall when the conference was, but it, it was published about 25 years ago. Yeah. And uh Inevitably, I know you're someone who never sits still in terms of the stuff you're thinking and working on. And I'm curious as to whether there are certain directions you might take the argument differently if you were writing the article today. Yes, yes, there really are. One of these, and this happened, I think, really as um, people generally engaged Bakhtin more, and they saw that one of his shortcomings was that he didn't always take into account power relationships in dialogue. He spoke as though it was always a dialogue of equals. And as we know, that's not necessarily the case. And so um, you need to bring an analysis of power in relationship to who is, who is able to speak, who is silenced, who um, is... Uh, forced into coerced speech in some situations. So the power analysis is extremely important. The other thing I realized is I was still operating with a very um, historicist bent. I was talking about how you get this biblical voice and that biblical voice in conversation with each other. And, and Bakhtin, for, for him, that's not finally the point. It's rather that the reader is drawn into the conversation. And so I think I would stress more the hermeneutical dimensions in which we look at reception history. We look at contemporary circles of reading and see that the truth is never something that is historically fixed, 
But as he says, the last word never has been spoken and never will be spoken. So that, I think, brings it into the interest that we have these days in biblical studies in looking at living reading communities. Um, As an example, some of my uh, ministry students were serving in um, uh, uh, as chaplains in a women's prison. And one of the activities that the women enjoyed very much was Bible study. And they were always engaging the text in ways quite different from what I was teaching in my intro to the Old Testament. But what they were doing was engaging those texts from the very different perspective of their own location. And it was important to realize that new insights onto truths were being generated in that environment too. So there you do have power relationships, you have radically different perspectives, and you have a breaking away from the pure historicist approach. So those things I think are all important uh, further developments. Yeah, it reminds me of some of the uh, path-breaking insights that started to emerge with the base communities of Latin America and reading the Bible in that context and Mm -hmm. the African-American church tradition and Mm -hmm. other kinds of things. Being able to lift those up is really an amazing and important thing. And I think biblical studies is now recognizing that those uh, aspects are every bit as much a part of this field as are our historical recovery dimensions. I agree. Um, So as we get to the close of this brief uh, conversation for now, um, you taught at Candler for quite a a number of decades. uh, Mm -hmm. And in that respect, I'm dating myself as well (laughs) as you. (laughs) And, uh, and I'm just, I just think it might be helpful for students to have any parting words of wisdom, so to speak, as they begin their journey of engagement. Many of them, some of them have taken courses in Bible, but many of them haven't. What are some things you'd urge them to keep in mind as they engage in this adventure of academic study of the Bible? Well, we we oftentimes come with two conflicting impulses to read the Bible. One, we think it's so familiar. I've grown up with it my whole life. Uh, It's just a familiar thing to me. And it's so important to read it and find it strange, really deeply strange, or then to let the camera reverse and realize, oh no, maybe I'm the strange one. Um, And so that, um, that estrangement. But the other thing is then to be reading some part of it that you resist or you find weird and um, not at all familiar. And suddenly to recognize, oh yeah, yeah, I get it. I know exactly what it's talking about. And so to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange, and not to do that as a spectator, but as a fully involved and vulnerable participant, I think that's the best way uh, to encounter the Bible. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, um, Carol, for sharing your wisdom, both in text and now in voice and image uh, with my students. And and the plan is also to make this more generally available to others. Um, And uh, they'll look forward all the more to seeing your further work. Thanks again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.